Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. If it hadn't been for a strange series of events a few years ago, Yvette Vickers probably would have been best known as a star of some unusual movies. Attack of the 50-foot woman, incredibly huge, with incredible desires for love and vengeance. In Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which was released in 1958, Vickers plays a scheming girlfriend of a married man who wants to get rid of his wife. Once she's in the booby hatch, throw the key away. That'll put you in the driver's seat. Unfortunately for Vickers, the wife ends up becoming 50 feet tall because, you know, things happen. Fortunately, another movie, Attack of the Giant Leeches, was just over the horizon with another part for Vickers that involved cheating spouses. It was the sort of role she tended to get, and it didn't surprise her. Of course, you know, the way I looked, it's true. I, I did, uh, I showed my figure, uh-huh. and I, I liked doing it. And I, no apologies, you know, uh-huh. I enjoyed it. Then, in April of 2011, Vickers, who had been sort of famous during her lifetime, became sort of famous again because of the way she died. She died all by herself in L.A., and they only discovered her body a few months after she had died. It was her neighbor who first noticed that she wasn't coming out. That's Luke Fernandez, a professor of computing at Weber State University in Utah. When they went in to recover the body, her screen was on, and people sort of reconstructing her past realized that she'd been on Facebook a lot, or at least on social media a lot, sort of corresponding with fans. Clearly, though Vickers may have been reaching out to fans, the many months that it took to discover her body and the gruesome scene that her neighbor ultimately described to the press, it indicated she hadn't been in particularly close touch with actual embodied humans. The Vickers case led The Atlantic magazine to publish this headline, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? And it led Fernandez and his colleague, Susan Matt, a professor of history at Weber State, to ask, how is tech changing us? Are we becoming lonelier, more disconnected? Or is it having other effects? Are we becoming more bored, more vain? And perhaps most importantly, have we always worried about things like being lonely? Maybe this fear is just part of the hand-wringing that goes on. No matter the decade or the century, people worry that times are changing and things are going downhill. So we wanted to get a sense of how earlier generations had dealt with some of these emotional issues and whether their technologies had played a role in helping them solve them. What Susan Matt and Luke Fernandez found, and what they write about in their book, which is called, aptly, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid... Well, they found it's not just our technologies that have changed over time, it's us. Take the issue of loneliness, which Yvette Vickers' death put into the national conversation. Concerns about feeling lonely, Matt says, just weren't present in the same way in earlier times. Many people thought it was divinely ordained. It was part of the human condition. Perhaps God had put you um, in a solitary place to teach you lessons. Perhaps there was some spiritual redemption to be found from aloneness. So while people didn't enjoy lonesomeness, they also thought sometimes it was ordained. Um, They also made an important distinction between lonesomeness and solitude. And one was painful, the other was valuable. And increasingly, we've kind of dispensed with the notion of solitude 
we use the word a lot less today than our ancestors did. And so the positive connotations of aloneness are disappearing. The notion that God gave people harsh, short lives and all sorts of emotional burdens to bear, that changed too. In the 1800s, a movement arose called New Thought, which began to overtake tougher forms of Protestantism with messages like, you have divine parts of your being, and positive thinking will make you happier and healthier. Americans began to reimagine ourselves and our capacities. And that shift explains a lot of what causes us concern today, from our questionable belief that, sure, we can have hundreds of friends, to the notion that, we are totally capable of multitasking, no matter what the research shows. We imagine that we're limitless, and then when we realize that we're not, we experience anxieties uh, and disappointments. Around the same time that the New Thought movement gained traction, says Fernandez, something he calls the loneliness industry was born. With the development, you know, this is late 20th century, uh, we have the development of therapies, the formal study of loneliness, the development of conferences about loneliness, the development of a loneliness proneness scale, a way of sort of quantitatively measuring loneliness. All of these developments pathologize the condition of being alone and turn it into a sickness in a way that wasn't perceived in the 19th century. Millions of us were crowding into cities, and a rash of lonely clubs started to become popular, meant to counteract the way in which cities could make you feel lost and anonymous. And then new technologies started to promise that they could ensure no more loneliness. Buy one of those newfangled radios, for example, and you'll never have to be alone. You'll always be connected, which sounds a lot like what telephone companies would promise decades later. When a faraway voice sounds as close as you feel, that's reach out and touch someone. That's AT&T. And that connectedness was also what Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg would promise in the early 21st century. I hope that we have the courage to see that the path forward is to bring people together, not push people apart, to connect more, not less. A woman in Whitefish, Montana, who watched radio become popular in the 1920s, later remembered that, quote, listeners became addicts, so accustomed to having sounds of any old kind coming into the house that they were nervous when it was quiet. It's possible, though, that that addiction did, in fact, make people less lonely. Radio stations started getting letters from elderly and sick people, thanking them for bringing sounds and news from the world into their homes. And so people certainly saw some benefits to these new technologies. Um, as you mentioned, the woman from Whitefish, Montana, though, saw that people were becoming more and more addicted and so suddenly entranced by the idea that they could have sound around them whenever they wanted. And I often think about this when I'm cooking, like 130 years ago, the idea that I'll turn on, you know, some music while I make dinner. What a privilege it is and something we've taken for granted so much because it's just become kind of background noise. But for this generation, right on the cusp of that change, it was this exciting moment. That's not to say that at the same time, people didn't realize that they were losing something. And so you've got these editorialists and commentators who are saying, wait a second, we're losing solitude. We're losing the ability to be alone because we want this noise constantly. And I think our generation 
are the inheritors of that new expectation for constant stimulation. Yeah, and I think we oftentimes we villainize modern social media and sort of the digital technologies as technologies of disconnection. And there may be something to that, um, but there are scholars, sociologists who claim that we're still connected even with that, and that there's probably other technologies that we should worry about, but they become sort of so naturalized in our life that we don't even bother to critique them, such as our move to the suburbs, a TV watching in basements alone, commuting in cars as individuals rather than commuting together uh, via trains. All of those sorts of developments, which are technological in a way, also serve arguably to isolate us and in more important and more significant ways than modern social media. So let me pick up on that. So then I guess the big question, and this is hard because you're kind of trying to put on different scales, different technologies, but... You know, when you think about somebody who's, you know, in a very rural place like Montana, you know, getting the radio um, or or people now, you know, who uh, have a limited group of friends around them but but can turn to social media, do you feel like the, the real fundamental issue of people feeling alone and isolated has grown as an issue or, in fact, technology is actually – Maybe we don't give a credit for this, but maybe it's really helping us out in a way that, yeah, we wring our hands on the margins, but it's great. You know, I don't think we want to dismiss out of hand the fact that it does connect people. And there are some wonderful anecdotes that people told us when we interviewed them about the ways it had made life much easier, whether for people in isolating places or people who had moved. We got particularly powerful stories from immigrants who were trying to connect with families back home. And boy, did things like FaceTime make a difference compared to having to dial long distance 30 or 40 years ago and paying, you know, hundreds of dollars for short phone calls. So there definitely are benefits. Mm. On the other hand, you know, one theme of the book we talk about is how it's created these limitless expectations. And there are some psychologists in the 1970s who come up with this idea that maybe loneliness is caused not by just having so many friends but missing a few relationships, but instead by having a disparity between the number of friends you have and the number you want. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I think the trends with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram have raised our expectations to such an unrealistic point that maybe our anxieties about loneliness are springing from that disparity um, we feel between our expectations for this completely happy, rich social world that we think will come with hundreds, if not thousands of friends, and the fact that our lives can never quite match that. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Luke Fernandez and Susan Matt, both professors at Weber State University. They're the co-authors of Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, Changing Feelings About Technology from the Telegraph to Twitter. I wonder if anybody said to you, or you might have also just seen it reflected in old articles or old, you know, magazine pieces that you read, that what they worry about now with their kids or what they hear now um, echoes in any way what their parents said about like, oh, my gosh, my kid's on the telephone all the time. This is a real problem. We've got to put restrictions on it. Or my kid watches television all the time. Or, you know, that that they kind of remembered from the 50s or 60s or 70s, these same concerns being expressed, but about completely different sets of technologies. 
You know, I think there definitely are those echoes. I can remember uh, some of our sources talking about the television as giving off imbecile radiation, that it was going to just kind of (laughs) infect the minds of the coming generation. And there was a disquiet about it. Despite those echoes of the past, there does seem to be something more pervasive about this technology in that, you know, at least the TV was in your living room. Um, It wasn't in your pocket. At least the radio was on your car console or in your living room, but it wasn't in your pocket. Um, That it's inescapably attached to us now, I think, is something that makes us rightly worry about its effects and also that it is so able to track our movements and our desires and also shape our desires is worrisome. Mm-hmm. Luke and I taught a class in Germany on technology and emotions a couple of years back. And one thing that was so interesting is in America, we ask our students, you know, is the technological future utopian or dystopian? And more Americans are optimistic. And in Germany, um, there was a great deal more pessimism about where we were going. So just because we say, well, we lived through it in the past, you know, maybe that's also a sort of a culturally contingent optimism we've learned. It's interesting, too, that it seems like many um, technologies travel this kind of trajectory of, like, optimism to concern. Like, when you're like, well, at least televisions are in our living room and they're not in our pocket, you you tell stories about people um, remembering when televisions came into their neighborhood. And at first, they were like a uniter. You know, like one person on the block had a television, so you went there and you saw something that was really important and you all got together and wow. Well, that's not really what televisions do anymore. Now there are televisions in many different rooms in many houses. And what they do is actually divide people, right? Because one person wants to watch sports and one person wants to watch stuff about like home and garden and one person wants to watch cartoons. And You know, that like the same technology can have two completely different functions and it can go from optimism to what is this doing to us? Yeah. And, you know, if we had only remembered, you know, before 2016, sort of that inflection point when everyone started to think more negatively about social media, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what the Telegraph was originally heralded as something that would bring around worldwide peace and connectivity. The Internet similarly uh, was seen as something that would bring around democracy worldwide. And of course, we've learned in the, in the recent past that those hopes are accompanied by disappointments. But if we had just remembered the history of the telegraph and the similar trends of hopes turning into disappointments, perhaps we would have been more tempered in our original celebrations of, of the internet. Hmm. I'm talking to Luke Fernandez and Susan Matt, authors of the book Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid. We're going to be back in just a minute to talk about another emotion that we all feel and that kids have complained to their parents about forever, probably, boredom. Is boredom getting worse? Is tech maybe making it better? If you want to hear this whole segment, our podcast is on Apple Podcasts, so you can subscribe there and get the show delivered to you each week. It's also at our website, innovationhub.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. With Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, we hope you will enjoy the show. It was, for a while, an epidemic without a name. And it was a strange epidemic, one that seemed to only affect rich people. Like, for example, 
Thomas Jefferson. He used to write letters to his daughter, who also claimed to be suffering from it, and he called it, I think, one of the great cankers of the human soul. Luke Fernandez is a professor of computing at Weber State University, who has written about Jefferson's struggle to free himself from this rich person's epidemic. And it wasn't just Jefferson or his daughter, Martha, who was plagued. John Adams called himself tormented, and it was worse in Europe. A wealthy young man from Paris shot himself in the fancy hotspot of Monte Carlo because he, too, apparently, had been affected by the epidemic. But most of American society thought that we were sort of immune or sort of vaccinated against ennui because it was an aristocratic sentiment because we were so concerned with sort of, there was so much to do, so much work to do in America that there wasn't time to be bored. That's right. Once upon a time, the thinking went, boredom was something that only the rich really worried about. Because, as we've seen parodied in shows like Downton Abbey, for the rich, every day was a holiday. I've got a job in Ripon. I said I'll start tomorrow. A job? You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course I'll have the weekend. What, what is a weekend? The rich tended to call this idle nothingness ennui, a French word. Jefferson said that idleness begets ennui, ennui the hypochondria, and that a diseased body. So the idea that having nothing to do could kill you, that seemed like a real possibility. And during the time that Jefferson was fretting, the emotion that we now call boredom, it didn't even exist. And it wouldn't for decades. Basically, the word boredom gets introduced in the mid-19th century in English. And people had talked about dull times, monotonous times, tedium in the past. But the word boredom as a state of being, as a distinct emotional state, only comes into existence then. Susan Matt is a professor of history at Weber State and a co-author with Fernandez of the book Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, which looks at how our emotions have evolved along with our technology. It's likely that people always got bored, that that's not a new thing, but it might have once seemed normal, not much to complain about, until the 20th century. That's when use of the word bored to describe how we felt started to skyrocket. And everyone from CEOs to high school kids realized life can be hideously boring. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression. That's actor Ben Stein playing just about the most boring teacher you can imagine in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Which, anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? Indeed, Stein, as an actor, built a career on being boring. That was his shtick. similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? Authors Luke Fernandez and Susan Matt wanted to understand how, as a society, we became so terribly bored. And just in the last hundred years or so. Part of it, they argue, was that work changed. Once, having a job may have protected you from the boredom that filled the lives of the idle rich, but as technologies like the assembly line arrived, that shifted. The other part of it was perception. 
our expectations for how entertaining life should be, they also started to shift. And the acceptance of monotony gradually decreases. So just like loneliness, you know, people kind of expected that there were times they were going to be lonesome. There were times they were going to encounter tedium, and it wasn't necessarily as negative a state as it became. There's actually a little best-selling book at the end of the 19th century called Blessed Be Drudgery, which gives you a sense that, um, you know... (laughs) Sounds like a fun book. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's a page turner. Um, But, um, you know, that gives you a sense that there used to be a different way of thinking about monotonous times, but this new concept of boredom kind of replaces that and becomes ensconced as a negative category of experience. Yeah, sort of packed in with the development of the the sort of the coining of the word boredom and its sort of its its developing currency, its usage is sort of the democratization of the experience. Something that used to be just something that was isolated in the upper class becomes something that all workers, all Americans experience, and especially so when you know you're moving from the country. Uh, where certainly there was drudgery in, in the type of work you did, but perhaps not the same as the type of drudgery you'd experience on, say, a production line or assembly line, where it's just the same kind of labor over and over, day after day, hour after hour. I, I mean, that strikes me, that sort of the advent, the the invention of um, the assembly line and this notion of, like, I just put on, you know, car door handles from eight in the morning till six at night. Uh, You know, I think early on people were working easily six days a week. I mean, that that seems like something that's completely different from working on a farm or, you know, being a cobbler or doing something that has some degree of variety built in. This is asking the human mind to do something that's it's a lot of sameness. Right. And, you know, when you tell people that boredom is a word that only emerged in the mid-19th century, they're initially surprised. But when you do think about these changing modes of production and the development of assembly line and it's and it's sort of the way it really does amplify judgery, it's it's maybe not so surprising why the, the term gained as much currency as it did. And as it's catching on and becoming identified as a problem state to be eliminated, that, you know, workers are experiencing it and there's some concern maybe it will reduce their productivity, you see psychologists begin to weigh in as well. And increasingly, they offer a new vision of human nature. Um, Whereas 19th century Americans expected monotony as part of their lives, by the 1930s and 1940s, some psychologists are beginning to say, actually, humans deserve stimulation. They deserve entertainment. Uh, And that's a new vision of human nature, that we thrive on variety. Earlier generations wouldn't have said that. But what they're seeing around them is lots of people who are finding their work stultifying. And so they go out after after work and go to the movies or go to the dance hall. And it's clear that these people are searching for something more outside of the factory. And before that, even like regular people didn't expect that entertainment was necessary to their lives. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I don't think they expected it. They liked it when they got it, but they didn't expect it to be, you know, what are we going to watch on Netflix tonight? It was a <laughs> treat when you got it, but you certainly didn't take it for granted. And this is the thing, you know, we were wondering, well, how do we sort of piece all these different chapters together, a chapter on attention, a chapter on loneliness, a chapter on boredom? 
what do they share in common that can turn it into a, a larger narrative? And for us, it's this idea of the development of a limitless self, that we experience or imagine less limits in our lives than we did before. And, you know, framed in terms of attention, we think that we can attend to more things than we used to, that are that we're less limited in terms of what we need to pay attention to. Uh, in terms of loneliness, we imagine that we can have infinite or, or more connections than, than people, that we're less limited in terms of the number of connections we can have with other people. And in terms of boredom, that we can expect unlimited entertainment in our lives. So there's, these are all part and parcel of the development of a new American self that imagines itself as limitless. What made, uh, I mean, I guess then at, at base, what made Americans go from thinking like, I'm a small piece of God's plan and, you know, can easily be kind of swept away and I'm not that significant, which I think was actually a message of religious sermons for a good long time, to, as you say, this thing that seemed to change our view of all sorts of things that we were that we should endure, be it loneliness or uh, boredom or whatever, this notion that, you know, we're infinite. I can have so many friends. I can impact so many people. Maybe my life doesn't have to be so, you know, short and brutish as as I once thought it should be. Like, how did that change? One set of paired emotional changes we trace in the book, which we haven't talked about here today, is the transition in views about vanity and the transition in views about the feeling of awe. And just a a real thumbnail sketch, um, traditionally uh, 17th, 18th, early 19th century people worried about celebrating themselves, worried about putting too much stock in themselves because they were told again and again, life is fleeting, it's short, you're inherently flawed because of original sin. You're going to die. Don't get too puffed up about anything right. <laughs> you've accomplished. So there were all these limits on how vain you were supposed to be, how much you should celebrate yourself. And we argue that some technologies like the photograph, the letter, and the mirror gradually schooled Americans in how to celebrate themselves a little bit more. Um, these are kind of the ancestors of the selfie and the Facebook post. Um hmm. So vanity gradually became less of a sinful state and more of an acceptable uh, quality. Self-celebration was no longer taboo. So, you know, in one chapter, we trace this kind of idea of a rising self and an increasingly powerful self, a paired emotion which kept our vanity or, as people talk about it today, our narcissism in check in past eras was the feeling of awe. And traditionally, people felt awed by God, by nature, by forces larger than themselves and um, regarded themselves as a small part of a big universe that was overpowering in its forcefulness. And in our chapter on all, we talk about how that feeling um, gradually changed and people became more and more impressed by their own powers <laughs> um, and less and less impressed by those of God or nature. Hmm. Susan Matt and Luke Fernandez are professors at Weber State University. They are authors of the book, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, Changing Feelings About Technology from the Telegraph to Twitter. Thanks very much to both of you for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Mr. Lonely, wish I had someone to call on the phone. On our website, we've got Thomas Jefferson's original letter to his daughter Martha about how terrible he felt it was to let ennui creep into your life. 
He suggests she schedule every minute of her day with activities from reading Latin to sewing to dancing to playing music to inventing. That's at innovationhub.org. I wish that I could go.